Hi, I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and thanks for joining me here today on The Communication Architect. Each week, we'll share content that will empower you to grow your personal leadership capacity through the development of communication competencies that build emotional health and relational resilience. We'll unpack some practical applications of interpersonal, intrapersonal, family, and organizational communication. And we'll connect with stories of transformation that will inspire you to achieve personal and social change. Now, let's build the scaffolding you need to become a communication architect. Maybe you've heard the story of the construction worker who was walking along the beams of a New York City skyscraper one evening as he completed his shift. Most everyone had gone home and he was alone on the steel girders, suspended hundreds of feet in the air. As he walked along in the near darkness, the unthinkable happened. He suddenly lost his footing and felt himself begin to fall. As gravity took over, he instinctively thrust out his hands and grasped desperately onto one of the girders, wrapping his fingers tightly around it. He shouted and shouted for help, but the frantic sounds of the rushing city below him drowned out his cries. One by one, his fingers grew tired, and he finally felt he couldn't hold on any longer. As his last finger released its grip on the girder, he let out a terrifying scream as he fell. Six inches, where his feet landed firmly on the huge steel girder that had been beneath him the whole time. We've all had moments like that. We've all had moments where we worked ourselves up about a what-if situation, something we imagine might possibly take place, and we cling to that mindset with everything we have. Not until our feet hit the girder are we awakened to the reality of our faulty mindset. And in the case of the construction worker, that can make it feel at times as if we're hanging on, alone, in the near darkness, unaware that help is right there within our reach. That mindset will not only keep us from reaching out, but it can also keep us from seeing clearly, from processing clearly, from responding well to the situations in front of us. Last week, we talked about our offenses, our allegiances, and how these can affect our mindset. And I assigned you some some homework to look at your media consumption patterns and see what kind of screen time, what voices, what opinions are speaking into your life. If you didn't do it last week, don't worry, there's no late grade. Just take some time this week to reflect on it. Who's speaking into your life and what worldviews are they espousing? As we said last week, these worldviews, these looking glass self amalgamations, they all work together to create our sense of self, our identity. I'd like to spend a little bit of time today talking about one of those formative factors, the public education system. The United States of America was founded on the construct of religious freedom. Not only did the pilgrims come to this land in pursuit of religious freedoms, but Christian education was fully embedded in their thoughts, their language, their teachings, their social life. Historian Dr. Daniel Borstein says in his book, The Landmark History of the American People, that when the pilgrims came to America, they saw education as a path to discipleship. Even when the pilgrims founded the very first American university, Harvard Bible College, which is now called Harvard University, their goal was a biblical foundation. They wanted to make sure that the Bible was protected and passed on to a literate mass, one who could understand it. Because the Bible was the center, the anchor of all their research, their teachings, their laws and regulations, and their family life. Back then, the main forces of socialization were family, church, and education that supported, undergirded their Christian values. Today, for our youngest generation, that's, that's often not the case. Today's most powerful influence are more like social media, music, friends, and a school environment that often undermines Christian values. Proverbs 14.27 says that the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that turns us from the snares of death. 
Proverbs 19 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning, the starting point of knowledge. Knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The fear of the Lord was central to their teachings. The Bible was at the center of their educational process because the pilgrims knew that without an understanding of the scriptures, without an anchoring to the truth of God's word, every aspect of life in the new world of America would be colored by a faulty paradigm. The pilgrims were determined to instill in the next generation a foundational mindset of faith. Regent University professor Dr. Elizabeth Yeomans, a historian, says that colonial parents understood their divine mandate to educate their children in the word of God as a generational duty. The founding fathers, she says, were called, quote, people of the book, and their pastors taught them how to reason justly with the Bible in the civil realm. Today, Barna says that only 10% of Christians actually read the Bible together at home, though we have seen an encouraging uptick on that during the COVID quarantine. Samuel Adams said that divines and philosophers, statesmen, statesmen and patriots must all lead their children in the study and practice of the exalted virtues of the Christian system. And Noah Webster, who spent 20 years writing the nation's very first dictionary, said that the Christian religion is one of the first things in which all children under a free government ought to be instructed. He said, no truth is more evident to my mind that the Christian religion must, than that the Christian religion must be the basis of any government intended to secure the rights and privileges of a free people. Then he said this, education is useless without the Bible. Now, if you're familiar with education today in America, you know that a comparative analysis between the Christian goals of our founding fathers and the secular goals of the public sector today are pretty much on opposite sides of the spectrum. Why does that matter? Plato once said that the two most important questions for every civilization, every civilization must ask these two questions are, who teaches the children and what are they being taught? And that's because the way we train up the next generation today will be the direction of our nation tomorrow. Now, the pilgrims would have answered that question by saying that they taught their children the truth of God's word in the spirit of Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 9, which says, These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise, basically everywhere you go. And that implies having time, intentional time together. How would we answer that question? Who teaches our children and what are they being taught? Does our mindset today affect the decisions they make tomorrow? The secularization of public education is really a relatively new movement in America. There were some early indicators of this new trajectory, which we'll talk about in a moment, but it was really only since the values clarification movement of the 1960s that Christianity was fully dissected from the educational sphere. I come from a long line of educators. My grandmother, for one, was a teacher in the public system for 50 years. I have her hymnal and her classroom readers, and wow, the content from her books is so radically different from the content of today's classroom readings. In her public school hymnal, we find hymns, we find pro-America creeds, we find the actually the American's creed, um, songs of praise to our God, unapologetic focus on a Christian faith. And the, the, the entire book opens with this responsive reading. Listen to this again, public school book from my grandmother. The responsive reading says, leader, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he hath chosen for his own inheritance, to which the students would respond, 
Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Okay, then her readers, her McGuffey reader, taught moral lessons and scripture while teaching students to read and to write. The, the primer uh, that taught even, even the alphabet started with A, in Adam's fall, we send all, going through the entire alphabet and cross-referencing that with the Bible. Christianity, the Bible, was seamlessly interwoven with the very fabric of education, our public education system, just a few decades ago. Now, I've been working with the next generation for 20 years, and based on the fruit that I'm seeing coming out of the educational system, I would say we are living in a modern parallel of 2 Chronicles 34, where King Josiah is clearing out the land of every idol when suddenly his secretary discovers the book of the law in the forgotten rubble of the temple. This book of the law was not passed down from the parents as Moses had commanded, but instead it was buried, forgotten. Josiah cried aloud that his fathers had not acted in accordance with God's law, and it was thus lost to subsequent generations. We are in a very parallel time to that right now. As an anecdotal example, I heard an over I overheard a 10-year-old girl in a history museum right here in California just a few years ago ask her dad a question that underscores how far our cultural mindset has drifted from the original intent of our founding fathers. Our family was touring a history museum, and this girl was answering virtually every question the tour guide could throw at us all, the audience, including random questions on the history of ketchup. However, when we rounded a corner and the, the host made a comparative analysis to a book he assumed we would all recognize, the host said, it's kind of like the Bible, the little girl stopped, looked up at her dad, and said, Daddy, what's a Bible? He looked at her for a moment and then said, you really don't know? She shrugged her shoulders. He stalled, looked around a little sheepishly at the rest of us and said, I'll tell you later. Now, I don't know if later ever came for that girl, but this experience is becoming increasingly common. The proverbial burial of the book of the law in the rubble of the temple is bearing a tremendously negative impact on the mindset of the next generation. What kind of mindset precisely is being formed? Well, Today, unlike anything I've seen during my lifetime on this planet, there is a fierce and driving force dedicated to separating us from our history. We see it in the attempts at revisionist history, at the vehement removal of statues and monuments, testaments to men who fought and sacrificed and labored a lifetime to protect and preserve the freedoms we have in our country today. Not even King David, whom God called a man after his own heart, would have passed the litmus test of these haters who are tearing down anything their minds find offensive. There's a harsh attempt to crush the biographies of history if the historical figures had not yet attained perfection in every societal mindset. The connotation is really ridiculous at the root. Our founding fathers were in process, just as we all are. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If we expected perfection of them, we must expect it of ourselves too. But the reality is that we all see through a glass dimly, darkly. This convoluted mindset makes the bearers so focused on one mindset, one historical paradigm, that they fail to see all the good the individual also did for our nation. And honestly, it's ironic to hear so much pseudo-moralizing from groups that wanted to strip morality out of the public sector in the first place. Where do these mindsets come from? Let's look at what the next generation is being taught and how that has impacted the mindset of an entire generation. 
I remember 25 years ago being in an amazing church in Florida, and the pastor suddenly realized that what their kids were hearing in the public school system was really affecting their mindsets. They were coming home every day at ages six and eight years old, gripped with fear because the teaching of the day was that we were going to run out of resources, specifically water. They were literally terrified that they weren't going to have enough water. Our pastors recognized that their little children were being indoctrinated in a spirit of fear, and they decided to do something about it. They started a Christian school that has been impacting lives now for 25 years. Why should that matter to us? Well, let's talk a little bit about what's being taught today. I'll start with a comparative analysis of two modern books. First, let's look at my daughter's ninth grade biology text from Biology of Sciences. It's a classic Christian textbook we use for homeschooling. When you open the first page, you see classification of kingdoms like fungi kingdom, the animal kingdom, living kingdoms. This is science, biology, the study of life. Now we open to the first page of our school district's ninth grade, quote, science curriculum. And we'll put that word science in quotes there because what do we find? The first lesson is an in-depth teaching on gender fluidity, not the study of life. First Timothy 6.20 says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit, the sacred trust given, entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Knowledge there, no cease. Actually, one of the translations, the King James Version, equates that with the word science. A clear and accurate understanding of science, of knowledge, is a vital foundation of our mindsets. If we don't understand how we were created with purposeful design, with vision, with destiny, then we will live a life without purpose, without intention, without vision, without a sense of destiny. Romans 1.20 says that God's nature, his character, is revealed in the natural realm, the created realm. The enemy's plan is to dissect us from that, to segregate us from that, so that our mindsets shift. We need good science, real science in our schools. That's one of the reasons I love the brilliant minds at ICR. Check them out, icr.org, Institution for Creation Research. Former Focus on the Family President, Dr. Dobson, put it this way. He said in no uncertain terms that the public schools in California are, quote, indoctrinating students in a godless, anti-Christian agenda disguised as progressive curricula. He told Christians to, quote, flee public schools. Lieutenant Colonel Ray Moore, who was the founder of the Exodus Mandate, adds this. If we don't change the way we do education, we will lose our country. Now, I know that might seem a little alarmist if you're just entering this conversation, but I would encourage you to read over the textbooks, the sexual health agenda for your district. Look at how history is being taught, how literature is being taught, how writing, creativity, self-expression are being taught, and compare these values with The ones our pilgrims brought to our nation, compare them to your family values. Most importantly, hold them up to the light of scripture and see how they fare. Is our education not just accidentally overlooking our Christian heritage, or is it purposefully dissecting it from the annals of history? Prayer and Bible reading were legally removed from the public schools in 1962 and 1963, and then values clarification swept through the system. We'll talk more about that specifically in the next show. But from there, we've had cases like the Third Circuit Court holding that a first grader who was asked to share his favorite story in class couldn't read it because it was from the Bible, and a second grader in California who was visited at his house by the sheriff after he dared to bring Bible verses to school in his lunch bag to share during lunch. Oh, no. 
When Jesus gave his followers the Great Commission, he said that we are to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us to do. But the reality is that we are not even allowed to talk about Jesus in the public sphere. How can we make disciples if we can't make conversation? The Great Commission has literally been outlawed on our watch. The pilgrims held that the Bible was central to educational culture, but today's state system seems to say that the Bible is the bane of education. A friend of mine who was selling a writing curriculum was asked by the schools if she could take President Abraham Lincoln's prayer out of the book so that the public charter school could use it. Can you rewrite an edition without prayer, they asked? No. Why would they want to rewrite history? Because it changes the paradigm, the mindset, the narrative. One version of the book models Lincoln as a man of faith. The other dissects his faith from his presidential leadership as if it were a cancerous tumor. Let's go back to that question from Plato. Who's teaching the children and what are they being taught? In our city, I think the symbols that are currently flying outside the school district headquarters pretty much sum that up. Prior to last year, we had the United States flag and the California flag. Perfect. We're one nation, one state. Another flag was erected last summer, and then two more flags this summer, and I think these final three flags sum up the agenda of the public sector. If you live in San Diego, look it up. Look at the flags. Look at the angry comments on the organization's Facebook page. See if the school's really speaking for the, quote, public. Look up the mission and values of some of these organizations, and you're going to see where the public school system is aligned, where its allegiances are. Spoiler alert, they're not pledging allegiance to the Christian flag, just in case you were wondering. So who is teaching the children and what are they being taught? Public schools are prohibited from promoting or observing religious holidays and from permanently displaying religious symbols like the Ten Commandments, which not only form the basis of law in the United States, but but words that might actually help kids learn the form of self-government that the pilgrims were so passionate about. Just saying. According to the National Education Association, teachers are not allowed to organize or participate in religious activities, including prayer. Teachers can mention all religions with a broad brushstroke, but they may not show, quote, favor to one religion over another. Oh, unless it's a flag of an anarchist movement, then, of course, that's totally okay. So in a sense, you can have a form of godliness, but you will absolutely be required to deny its power. You can talk about Jesus as long as he's presented as an equal in power to Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, Zeus, or I guess even Satan. Are you hearing what I'm saying? <laughs> Second Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? And these mandates look good on paper. I totally get it. We're protecting individual rights and freedoms. Absolutely. But the challenge is that you can't teach in a vacuum. Again, again, go back to the flags. If truly what was being taught in the system was not an adherence to any religion, to any sectarian point of view, then why not just the American flag? And why do we have aggressive sexual education agendas? Why do we have lobbies like this? If you went to public school years ago and you think, well, you know, it wasn't that bad back then, you are absolutely right. It has gotten progressively darker over the last 20 years. Go to websites like SavedCalifornia.com to see some of the examples of sexual education slash experimentation agenda in our district right now. And let me warn you, it's sobering, it's alarming, it's grievous. Disclaimer, if you go there, if we see that same root and that same fruit in our districts, I think we have to agree with what Dr. Dobson said, flee. Now we could say, you know, well, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Yes. But if we are standing knowingly, willingly in front of the firing squad, I'm not sure what it is exactly that we expect. 
Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Let's look at the fruit, the impact that post-Christian education is having on the culture. The National Alliance on Mental Health, Health the National Alliance on Mental Illness says that Gen Zs have a crisis of mental health, including anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, self-injury, and a crippling fear of failure. According to the Journal of Pediatrics, almost 60,000 girls between the ages of 10 to 18 tried to poison themselves in 2018. The Center for Disease Control says that the sexually transmitted disease rates for teens in the United States today, are you ready for this? 8,000 a day, 3 million a year STDs. And we have 57 million abortions globally each year. That's actually half of the world's entire death count, $112 million. If we actually counted abortion as death, that's a whole other topic. Check out my blog on that one. And Gen Z's are the most atheist, unchurched, disconnected, confused generation in the history of our nation. The top reasons for their atheism should concern us deeply. They can't believe a loving God would allow evil. And they believe science and the Bible contradict The fears of the pilgrims have been realized. We now have a biblically illiterate generation. George Washington said that reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. It is impossible to govern the world without God and the Bible. Many people in the next generation feel like the construction worker we talked about at the beginning of the show. They feel like they're hanging on alone in the darkness. They are totally unaware that there's a steel girder right beneath their feet. Why? Because of the way they've been trained. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. We all need to do some soul searching as parents. What's the fruit we see in our own children's lives, and how can we best set them up for success in a world that is increasingly determined to drag them away from a mindset of faith? And be encouraged, friend. People may try to remove Jesus from the history books. They may try to topple statues of the men and women who came to this country to worship Jesus freely. But you can't remove Jesus from history, no matter how creatively you try. Because the very fact that we're standing here in 2020 is a testimony to his birth. The birth of Jesus 2,020 years ago is the center point of history, the core of our calendar, the event that changed the world forever. He cannot be moved. He cannot be overthrown. He cannot be supplanted. His name is above every other name. And our job as Christians is to make his name famous. Thanks again for joining us here on The Communication Architect. If you have questions about today's episode, or if there are topics you'd like to see us address, send your comments via Instagram to at Dr. Lisa Dunn or via email to contact at drlisadunn.com. That's D-R-L-I-S-A-D-U-N-N-E.com. And remember, strategic communication will help you build greater emotional health and relational resilience. So don't miss the next episode. I'm Dr. Lisa Dunn, and I look forward to talking with you next time right here on The Communication Architect.